Hey fellow gamers, it's Woody here with another episode of Rolling for Change. This time around, we talked to Tim Grant and Brian Quinones about their work with using uh, role-playing games and board games in therapeutic settings. Now we talk about a number of issues. This is a very long discussion, and I was thinking about this as I was as I was editing the the episode. It's not going to appeal to gamers necessarily, and it's not going to be appeal to therapists necessarily. But if you are a therapist and a gamer, this is probably going to be uh, right up your alley. Um, I was rather proud to say that I knew most of the games we talked about, and so there were a few surprises in there. But uh, that's a good thing because. Uh, we all get a chance to learn something new. So we had a great discussion uh, just kind of going in-depth into kind of how do we put games into therapeutic situations and what are the barriers we face and what are the systems that we're have, going to have to create in order to make all this work. So it, it's a really exciting conversation, if a little long. For that, I apologize except for the fact that it was a really good conversation and I think you guys will get a lot of of edifying new information out of our discussion. So the the episode was recorded a while back, so we talk about August 30th, which you can't possibly do anything about now because here we are in October. But you can still join us at Save Against Fear, which is coming up next week. So I'm going to put this out today, October 5th, and Save Against Fear will be next week, uh, starting on next Friday. So uh, that's the 11th. So you still have a chance to go and buy your tickets and join us at Save Against Fear in Harrisburg, Pennsylvania. Anyway, here's our discussion. Hope you have a good time and uh, look forward to hearing from you if any of our discussion points hit your nerves in a way that makes you want to talk to Rolling for Change and say, hey, about that. That's, that's what I want. I, I want people to come and say, hey, about that. Let's talk about that. All right, guys. Here we go. Enjoy. Welcome to Rolling for Change. My name is Woody Harris. I'm your host, and Rolling for Change is a podcast about the transformational nature of gaming. Today, I have Tim Grant and Dr. Brian Quinones to talk to us about their approach to using gaming in therapy and education. Oh my God, I'm so excited to talk to you guys. I really am. Um, you guys came to me out of the blue. Uh, Josue sent you, sent you. I felt like, you know, I was like at the, the speakeasy and I opened the little <laughs> keyhole and it's like, Josue hint, sent me. Oh yeah, you're good. <laughs> Come on in. Uh, so let's do this. Let's talk about what you guys are doing. I'm, I'm so excited to talk about it. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, we have a company called, uh, Gaming Approaches Towards Education and we, we pretty much do geek therapy. We run role-playing games, storytelling games. We use, uh, expressive art. And what else do we use? We've been, yeah, first of all, uh, role playing, storytelling. Oh, we do use a lot of um, traditional, I, I would say traditional board gaming, but the, mm -hmm. but for us, that's traditional. When you say traditional, I think in other parts of the field, they mean like Monopoly. Like, yeah, uh, like, or sorry, Uno. Yeah, yes. Connect Four. Or, um, <laughs> or Therapy Game. Yeah. 
they're here. We have those things, uh, but we do a lot more with modern gaming. Um, for us, Catan is kind of the cutoff for like how far back we're going. Okay. And even then, it's like Catan Junior. Uh, okay. So we have like Splendor. We have um, what's another? Oh, War. War's War. A really yeah, good War. One uh, table with. I I don't remember the the creator's name, but it's a, a dice rolling game where you're you're trying to um, capture uh, castles in feudal Japan, and you are uh, pretty much rolling dice to try and capture the, the the castles and trying to take them from other people and trying to collect as many as you can to score the most points. Which it's pretty fun. It's a really simple system, uh, but it's really engaging. So your standard cooperative game. Yeah, that's what we do. <laughs> okay. <laughs> Definitely okay. not that. <laughs> so where's the inspiration for this? You, you're, 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 using, you're doing exactly what I set out to do when I put Rolling for Change together, which was to kind of catalog uh, how we can use board games. And, in, and it's in the same sense you call it board games because I'm, I'm a hobby gamer. Um, yeah. How we bring that into the therapeutic milieu, how we bring that into the educational milieu and, and what we do with it and how we use it. So you're, you're doing what I, what I want to do or have been doing and want to do more, but where did the inspiration come from for you? Uh, a bunch of places, actually. Uh, I, I've been, myself, I've been playing some version of D&D since I was 13 years old. Okay. I'm very nearly closing, closing in on 40, so I've been playing games of that nature for a very long time, and even before that, I was playing games like Heroes Quest and and Dragon Strike and all those other like games that came out in the '80s that were that were so great. Yeah. Um, and through the years, uh, me and Brian have been talking about you know using games in therapy and how he used things like Monopoly and Yu-Gi-Oh and all these different games like that the kids were that were playing and that he wanted to start using other games and start getting into other mediums in order to try and make a connection with the youth. And we started looking at different ways that we could start using games in a different way. Yeah, okay. so uh, me and Brian, like, we've been going through this for a couple of years, you know, playing games and, and talking about how it could be connected with therapy. And within you know, maybe about four or five years ago, we started really thinking about, like, maybe we should start designing games and trying to, like, integrate it with therapy. And we started to come to the conclusion that maybe we should start a company that is going to use gaming and therapy together and combined and expressive arts and all these other forms of medium that people look at as a way that isn't therapy that you're just you know you're just drawing or you're just mm -hmm. playing a game and making it integrating it with therapy and to be fair we had to get to a point where i knew for sure i had the research to back myself up um i was in the middle of doing my dissertation I was already okay. too far into it to kind of change the direction. And so uh, my dissertation focused on in-home therapy from the perspective of cl clinicians who have been in the field for like five years doing okay. doing in-home. 
Mm-hmm. So if there was going to be talks about burnout, they were already on the other end of it. And I knew that they wasn't going to be like, they could give me advice at that point to make sure I'm not going to be burned out or the people working with or, or and for me aren't. Um, at that point, I had been so far into it that the only thing I could really talk about is chest therapy. I couldn't bring anything else in that would be part of the direction I ultimately wanted to go in. Um, and at that time, I'm doing my research, doing, uh, getting everything together for the for the dissertation. So this is back in like two, 2012, 2013. Mm-hmm. And um, I'm starting to see Josue pop up. I'm starting to see Hawk pop up. Yep. I'm starting to see the Adams pop up. And I'm like, these guys are doing what I want to do. They're already out there. And I can't stop the inertia. Like, like the this is the direction I'm going with my dissertation. I can't change directions. Yeah. Uh, and it'll be like, well, another two or three years yeah, until before I can make that direction. Yeah. Um, so, but, I mean, really to answer your question, uh, the inspiration was coming from like the Adams over at Game to Grow, uh, the Bodahana yeah. group. Uh, even with you guys, with uh, like Will for Change and and um, Geek Therapy, Geek therapy in, yeah. in general, yeah. like this this is what said, oh, wow, like we could do this. Like this this is exactly what we want to do. But it wasn't enough for us to get past the barriers we had. Um, myself and Dr. James, we each had our own company that had a contract with the state to do intensive mm-hmm. in home and um, eventually as well intensive in community and. What wound up happening was we couldn't make that move until we had the research to completely back us up and change the minds of the case managers because those are the ones who are going to give us the referrals. Sure. And then um, I had finished my dissertation. Uh, Now I could start actually reading for leisure. (laughs) And um, I ran into... um, Reality is Broken and Super uh-huh. Better yeah, by uh-huh. uh, Jane McGonagall. And that was it. Like, all I needed was the research. Now I can prove how all of this fits. Yeah, and, and with the, with Oh, Mikhail Chekmahal. With Flow, like, yeah. there was a lot of books that were starting to influence oh, uh, Mihai, us. Oh, uh, Mihai Yeah, yes. I can't pronounce it. I cannot name, pronounce it either. It, it took me forever to learn how yeah. to say that name. Uh, and even then, it's hard to find his book. Like, you'll find Flow, but you'll find it on the business end. You won't find his original studies. It's That's a lot harder to find those. It, and it's interesting because a lot of our, our influence in the beginning when we started doing this, uh, Flow was heavily influenced in it because we started to see, like, uh, clients would start to really, like, engage when they hit flow and you can see when they hit flow uh like when you'd see um well self-stimulating behavior um you'd see um i had clients who were very violent too at the time um and i had just taken a course in emdr so i started to understand where the brain was going with this um, and was able to tie it into what i was reading and super better so, for example, um, in McGonagall's books, she talks about how playing Tetris can reduce um, post-traumatic stress, like 
the repetitious memories, right? Like embedded mm-hmm. when your memories get embedded into the trauma neural network. If you play Tetris within like ten hours of the traumatic event, those memories are less likely to um, embed themselves. But then, like almost as a side note, she's like, "Oh, and jigsaw puzzles." <laughs> if we, you would see the collection of jigsaw puzzles we have in this office, you, you would lose your mind. Once I saw that, I was like, "Wait a second! So it's not the video game. It's not just a video game. You know, there is like the tactile feedback and having to like get hyper focused while you're playing Tetris, but it's something going on with the visual processing." And then I took stuff with EMDR and I was like, wait a second, I think I know how to connect all of this a little bit better when I'm working with my clients in the home. And that probably saved me in that part of the field. Um, I was working with very violent clients. I didn't know how to reach them. And then I started combining all the things that I was learning at that time. And I was able to I was able to, to take my therapy to a place I and work with clients that I didn't think I was going to be able to. So I'm talking about low verbal, very mm-hmm. aggressive, um, autistic clients. And I'm doing that for a couple of years. And I'm like, wait, but the gaming can work too. I just got to find the right game for the right client. And then I started doing that for a couple of years. And then it was like, I kept making these referrals for my clients for social skills groups. Yeah, I'm, you know, we're living in New Jersey. Um, we're currently serving the Per Danboy area, uh, which is high high immigration, high uh, Latino population. Um, and but if I try to refer somebody for social skills group, they're driving all the way to Princeton, which is like almost an hour away, depending yeah, on traffic. Yeah, you know. So there was everybody was like, "Oh yeah, social skills group," but there was no one there to refer them to. So I was like, forget it. All right, I got to do this myself. Like we got, we got to get this to work now. I can't wait anymore because I'm tired of referring my clients to places that don't exist. <laughs> so yeah. a, a lot of the things that we see and, and a lot of things that I hear from uh, like case managers and stuff is that there's no, there's no real social skills groups. There's no social skills groups. And we decided let's, let's create social skills groups and start using gaming to, introduce social skills groups to the autism community and it just started taking off i think one of the major breaks for us though was going to metatopia yeah definitely that going to metatopia was, was a uh, metatopia is a, a game design festival in new jersey in morristown uh in morristown yeah yeah and okay. it it's the other side of uh of game design it's the uh like the business end of it all and it's interesting of all the things that we started learning and all the people that we're running into and we started running into social workers and other therapists that were going to these to these conventions and they were trying to like connect the pieces and learn where like therapy and gaming meet yeah um, social workers were doing this. So the, like defects, social, or I, I'm saying defects, but uh, uh, child protective services. Uh, oh, yeah. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. They were going to Metatopia yep. to identify the, that's, to me, that's some pretty enlightened thinking. Yeah. yeah. Not that, not that, not the social workers themselves. I, I'm not saying anything about social workers. What I'm saying is 
it's not a typical sort of response yeah. to a social work environment to look in that direction. Yeah, and on top of that, we were running into, like, special ed teachers. Yeah. And and this is the business end, too, man. Like, we're sitting on panels, and people are talking about, like, how to get your game published. Mm-hmm. And we're like, well, we're not here specifically for that. We were working on the podcast, and it kind of helped us see what, what else we needed and how the gaming community can help us with get to where we wanted to go to with the therapy end, right? Mm-hmm. Um, but what wound up happening is, is I started seeing, like, if you understand the design of the game, do you understand why it's fun for the for the client? Right. And then you got to figure out, okay, how is that therapeutic? Because you still have to be able to explain it to the case managers and I'm uh, a play therapist, right? At that okay. time, I hadn't even taken any classes for play therapy. I only knew like CBT and I had a, a, a sense that this is there, but I don't know how to explain it. Let's look at it from the game design components. There's also the aspect of like knowing what a game is supposed to project on you. What is the feeling that game is supposed to make you feel? Because that's a very important thing, too, because you don't want to invoke uh, certain emotions in someone that cannot handle those emotions. Mm-hmm. Yep, True. we learned that the hard way. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> uh, yeah we definitely learned, learned that. Um, going back to flow, though, that was I think that was kind of one of the tipping points. Once I started, so I have finished... Um, listening and reading to well I, I listened to a lot of audiobooks so yeah. I listened to um, McGonagall's work and I was like you know what let me go look up flow and look up positive psychotherapy and that's eventually what you know with with the atoms and what what uh, game to grow was doing and like I started seeing where all that where that all that's intersection because they're doing like the the psychodrama as well right yeah yeah so I'm looking and I'm like all right according to this guy, if you're in a state of flow, you're not going to um, have negative emotions. You're not going to know what time, like time is just going to react differently because mm-hmm. you're like in that zone, right? So I started looking for that with my clients. And I started making that question part of my assessment. And How do you do that? What's the question you ask to really determine whether or not a client has gone into flow? So first I'll ask, um, I'll ask the parent, right? I Uh was like, sometimes I might ask the parent in their own life first. So then they understand it for themselves and then how to apply it to their kid. Right. Okay. So I would ask them, is there any activity that you do that you become so focused that you don't, um, you don't know what time it is. Things seem to go by and it's a constant challenge. Like as you get better at it, it gets harder. Um, so sometimes they'll they'll get a sense of that, and sometimes they might have to add more detail. Like you know, when you do that, you're not um, you don't have any negative thoughts or feelings. You're just in that moment. And then I start seeing people. So I I give them the examples. Like the top four is couples dancing, mm-hmm. rock climbing, chess, and basketball. Right. Okay. 
So I give them those four, and usually they start making connections in their own life with things that feel similar. And then and I started people giving me examples of like cross stitching, crochet, and um, drawing. And I start okay, so the parents can now identify that. Is there anything that's going on in, with your kids that you see that? Um, and sometimes they could identify it. Sometimes they can't. I mm-hmm. I wouldn't realize until maybe three or four years later that, um, well, if they can't identify it, then they the child has a deficit in play, and they they don't have a way to really do that. Either they don't understand how to play, they don't have the cognitive level for it, um, or they haven't been exposed to it in such a way where it's part of as part of their life and the parents are like no you should be playing you should be having fun mm-hmm. um so like I, I kind of got a feel f- for it in that way and then once i got a sense of what that would look like with my clients in the moment then i started hunting that down in session and that's when i started seeing like a reduction in self-stimulating behaviors that's how i knew when they were in flow okay that, I, I love that that's part of the assessment, uh, you know, that I, I just love that you're setting up your own assessment and that, it, that it, it still gets you somewhere in terms of developing a treatment plan and, and somehow incorporates a better understanding of what's going on for the family and for the child. And I like that also that you talked about a play deficit because I think that maybe sometimes, and I don't work with autistic clients, so I don't actually know that population that well but maybe sometimes people don't have the examples that they need in order to develop play um i tend to think of it as being as almost like a uh, a genetic propensity towards something because you see it on every animal planet thing that's going on mm-hmm. you see play in all these animals but it, there also may be something that stunts it developmentally in terms of the way that you're nurtured and the way that things are going as you grow up so that you might miss some important moment where you can catch that wave and, and get into a state of flow because I, you're right. Play is completely a state of flow. Yeah. They, I'm starting to see now, um, because I'm going like all in on the whole, like becoming certified play therapist, right? Uh-huh. Does it have everything I want or need? No. Am I still going to have to duct tape things together? Yes. Um, <laughs> the nature of this business. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, but one of the major things I've seen is that, because they're looking for ways to make what they're doing evidence-based, they started going into the neurobiology of play. Okay. And once I started seeing what they're explaining and describing, like, so yeah, I, I have the alt play as a certification and I'm working towards the registered play therapist and registered play therapist supervisor, right? Mm-hmm. But as you're studying, they're kind of like, well, you have the child's, um, developmental level physically you have the developmental level cognitively and then you have a developmental level on how they play okay and i only just started looking this up in about a month ago and it just opened everything up for me because now i'm like all right this is why cooperative play isn't working with this child because it's not it's not their cognitive level uh, development, it's their play level development. And that's different. So I could have a kid in this office who their cognitive level, their, their biological level, right? 
mm-hmm. is 10. Their cognitive level could be somewhere between 12 and 14. Now, we could just talk about their social skills and their social level and be like, well, you know, it's kind of that of a five or six year old. But play is different. It's not just your social skills. It's how you interact with the world and draw pleasure from that world. So what happens when you have somebody in in the body of an 18, 20 year old who their play level is that of a two or four year old? Yeah, it kind of changes nothing, things. You've got to open the yeah. door for them somehow. Yeah. You, you need to find that doorway. And, and sometimes that doorway is kinetic sand. Sometimes it's, yeah. it's drawing. Sometimes it's building something with some type of uh, like Lego or something. Yeah. We've been doing a lot more with uh, tactile um, and sensory play. We've been doing a lot more with uh, just building. And it, it, the last year had i had to change what um my definition of of play is and i had to change my definition of cooperative play and gaming because if i left it just on the board or if i left it just in role-playing games and storytelling games i would have been completely blind to something as important for us right now as kinetic sand right so how did how have you like you're basically moved from a position of uh, this is this is what play is. That you've got a new definition. Can you tell us that new definition? Is it has it formed? Is it out of the cave? I don't think it's fully formed yet. Um, okay. I I do because part of the problem is is a lot of the trainings that I'm taking right now. Mm-hmm. Uh, they don't have groups yet. Like I'm not like a lot of the the play therapy training I'm doing doesn't have groups. I'm going to go to Dallas in October for a play therapy conference. And I'm just going to knock out like 41 C's in like one week. <laughs> I want to get a lot more of the group um, theories in that okay. in that place. But I do, I already, I'm going into it understanding that it's not going to be focused enough on autism. And so there's still going to be that, that blindness there. Um, and is that your primary client, autistic clients? Do you work with clients and other diagnoses or yeah we we do we we work with clients all different types of clients we work with clients with depression with uh anxiety uh social anxiety uh most uh, i will say probably about 90 percent of our clientele is on the spectrum though and and it's really great that this is happening because here in atlanta which is where i live uh there's there's a kind of a deficit a lack of of autism potentials like places that people with autism can go to get the kind of support and help that they need there's maybe two or three places here in atlanta that are the places that we turn to when we have uh someone on the autism spectrum and now i see people like you and game to grow and even badana to some extent that are are standing up and saying well we can do this differently and and that that's so exciting that's not something i mean it's nice to see that the rebels of us are standing up and saying hey we've got a different idea and we're gonna we're gonna go for it. Yeah, it, yeah. It, it, <laughs> it, it, it's interesting and scary all at the same time because you know we we're we're like these advocates for change, but there's so much resistance behind it. But there's also so much acceptance as well because we have families that are in such great need of services, and there there's not enough of it. And for anything to come up at this point, 
It's like, oh yes, I want my child to be a part of this because they need these services. They need the social skills aspect of, of, of therapy. And there's nowhere, I mean, in New Jersey, there's not too many places where the, that is offered. And we're seeing a lot of resistance because we're also looking at it from a, a standpoint of, of culture too, where, well, you're just playing a game and you're not really doing therapy because all you did was play Sentinels of the Multiverse uh, in in a session, and they and my son came home and said, "Well, uh, we we uh, defeated um, Baron Blade. Baron Blade, <laughs> and we stopped him from pulling the moon into the earth." <laughs> and parents are like, "Well, where's the the? Yeah. Where, where, how's that going to help us?" So, so I don't I'm right. When once I made the shift into the autism population with Enholm, uh-huh. I saw less resistance on that end because the parents are like and be be mindful that when i started working on this and teasing this out i was working in the home and i was pulling the parents into the groups okay like i was like no you're playing this game with us it's okay if you don't understand it um your child understands it or your or your child will understand it and will teach you um but those families were so happy to have any service and in a service that's willing to come to them. Um, I, I found working with the autism population, the parents have been more savvy um, and because they, there's a greater need. And so they have to understand what's available and how to get it. So what happens is, is, is explaining to the parents isn't as hard because then you just go back to what is it your child needs to learn? Yeah. Oh, he, he needs to learn empathy. Mm-hmm. And he needs to learn social skills and, and these, okay, what does that look like? Where are you going to get that from? Where does the child learn those things from? Absolutely. They learn from play, right? Like you learn who you're going to be by role modeling it when you're a child. Um, that hasn't been the problem as much as how do I get this past the case managers? How do I get this mm-hmm. past the state law that says what we're doing? Yeah, that, that's the tough part. Uh, so the contracts and whatnot and trying to understand that. I have spent, what, the last two weeks? About, I think the last and, two weeks. And that's weeks just straight, this, this time. That's this, yeah, that's just <laughs> this time. Um, reading the state regulations inside and out. Mm-hmm. And not just reading the current and what they give us, but reading the last like 15 years of revisions. Okay. And seeing how the law has changed, how it's grown, what it cut out and what it kept. And I'm reading it and this last week I was reading it and I was like, you have play therapy here as a modality within your law that says I'm allowed to do this with these clients in a group. Okay but the case managers and the the company that is recruiting us to work for them. They, they, they're part of the law, they're part of the regulations, doesn't even have that. Like, well, comparing... they, they don't even understand it, they don't even know that it's, that it's there. Yeah. So it's, it, it's something that's been in the background for a really long time and no one's used uh, like the, even the, the billing codes that we use because for, for the group, uh, they they almost have like disappeared in the background because no one was using them and no one knew how to use them. So to give you an idea, um, 
I've been doing in-home therapy in one way, shape, or form for the last, well, almost 16 years, right? Okay. I started as a mentor. I became a BA, master's level therapist, licensed mm-hmm. level therapist. So I've seen like every end of, of this part of the field. Um, when I was a BA, we were doing group uh, intensive in community where we would go pick up the kids at the ho- at the home um, and then take them out into the community together as a group. I did that with one company. Uh, Dr. James was actually uh, my supervisor at the time working with me uh, and with that company. Then uh, within the next year or so, I did something similar with another company, right? So, But that was like maybe 13, 14 years ago. Okay. Flash forward, people forgot that that code exists. People forgot that those groups exist. <laughs> yep. And that's a license level group. And they're like, can we even do this? Is that, are we allowed to do this? You know, and that's where like we had to study the law inside and out. Yeah, and, and then it came down to to almost training the, the case managers to be like, well, no, like uh, here it is right here. Like we're allowed to do this and you're also allowed to, to uh, give this code out or use this code in order to have social skills groups. One of the challenges in particularly in community work at this point is that the bodies that just decide what's going to happen have moved to an approach where they're looking for evidence-based practices which is awesome we we absolutely want our kids our families to get the kind of support that has been supported by lots of research and we know that there's a clear path to success in whatever term success is defined but as a result those of us who are I'll, I'll for the moment call us renegade therapists. Those of us who are renegade therapists are on the periphery of that because people aren't paying attention in this direction. They're so focused on the, the evidence-based practices that have been brought up through the literature. And, of course, those people who get grants to be able to do the research to make this thing work. You know, there's a whole social dynamic that's putting this all together. Th- that means that those of us who are doing this are kind of in a pocket of our own in which people aren't really paying attention because they're so focused on what 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 actually made it up through the journals and the literature and the the you know what made it what passed muster in terms of uh, social sciences. Uh, so now we're we're here in a place where we're having to defend ourselves in doing play therapy when it's very clear that that the roots of our our discussion the roots of our our growth as therapists are in play therapy even yeah. if we don't have a play therapy degree. Ultimately, that's where my back got up against the wall, right? Uh-huh. We were like, well, we're doing cognitive behavioral group therapy and we're using board gaming and play. And then it's like, all right, they kind of understand it. They're kind of okay with it. But I still lacked either enough research mm-hmm. to back it up or um, the right language because it goes back to like, yeah, we're using duct tape, right? Like we're duct taping <laughs> what we know from cognitive behavioral therapy, uh-huh. what we've seen with our client base. But to be honest, straight CBT is not going to work as well with someone who is low verbal. Sure. You know, it's you're going to hit a wall. So, okay, let me grab another piece and just tape that here and tape this together. Um, so I started... And this was about a year ago, 
I started thinking, okay, how are play therapists justifying what they're doing? Like how, how is it that they're saying what they're doing? Um, and I started looking at their literature and I'm like, okay, we're close to this. No one's doing exactly in, until we have like a full on certification for each type of geek therapy, yeah. <laughs> you know, like the subcategory, you know, um, until we have all of that, um, it's always going to be borrowing from here, borrowing from there and not having everything you need. That's why when I saw the, when I saw the art play, I was like, all right, you know what? He's using the words that I don't have for what I'm doing with my population. And I think if we were working with any other population, if it wasn't specifically trying to help the autistic population, we, I think we would have already failed. Like we would have already failed as a company. It would have been done because those parents know what, know what their kids need and they will advocate for it in a way that I have never seen. The only other time I've seen families advocate this way is for substance abuse. Okay. For rehab, you know, I used to work for Princeton um, Medical Center um, in the admissions department, and I would see families come in there in the middle of the night because I was working on an overnight shift and doing everything they can to keep um, their child, their teenager, you know, their adult child from killing themselves on whatever substance they were using. That same ferocity to keep a loved one alive mm -hmm. I'm seeing within the autistic population with their parents to make sure their kids get everything they need. I'm trying to draw some conclusions based on what we're talking about. And I think, you know, when I think about autism and I think about substance abuse and I, I'm putting these things in a categorization system that didn't exist prior to our discussion. But, mm. uh, what I'm thinking is that if you think about those diagnoses, they're not always, but, well, maybe for autism, it, it's always coming from a, a more biological perspective than it being a, a nurture kind of situation. As far as I know, and I'm not studying on autism, but as far as I know, uh, autism doesn't come from uh, the way that we are treating our children as parents, right? It comes from a, a genetic disposition? Yeah, I would say more genetic. Um I think part of the problem is with the last um, DSM, they may have broadened the diagnosis. I feel like they brought it brought in it too much. Mm. Um, and I've worked with families who they're they'll tell me, "Oh, my son or daughter is not they're not autistic." Um, and I would I would have to talk to them and I'm like, "Look, whether I I'm kind of the mindset where you are not your diagnosis." Absolutely. Right? So your, your son or daughter, you're right, they're not autistic, but they do have a problem communicating. And that's part of the autism doc diagnosis. So we're going to come at it from, from the communication standpoint. We're going to come at it from the self-stimulating standpoint. We're going to, you know, it, it goes back to um, something I wanted to say earlier when I'm talking to the family is, what is it you want for your child? What is it your child wants for themselves? Where can we meet in the middle and, and how can we get as closest to that, to that mark as possible? I, I do community work or I'm actually a supervisor for community workers. And very often you're, you're talking about dealing with uh, social services groups and, 
And that's a whole different ballgame because the, the diagnoses we see out there are very often a result of the environment that the child is in as opposed to being a result of a genetic predisposition. Maybe ADHD uh, gets some of that, and maybe sometimes bipolar gets some of that, and schizophrenia. But if you start looking at ODD and depression and things of that nature, they're probably generated by a social construction kind of thing. And so the parents that are on the end of those things probably have an easier time in, in generating some guilt about themselves for what their child is going through, whereas a child, a, a parent of an autistic child maybe doesn't do that because they recognize that this is not about me. This is about helping my child. I'm not sure, And man. if I'm putting myself yeah, in a hole I'm here, sure. I'm saying I all the things that, I'm saying, right. yeah. <laughs> I might but, have to just cut it all out of the, out no, of the no, podcast. No, 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 keep it because that's, that's part of the, the conversation we have, right? Sure. Um, that's the that's the back and forth the parents are going through. Whether so, when we're saying that there's a range uh, within the clients that we're seeing as far as their abilities within autism, there's also a range within the parents' like ability to handle that. Why they're this way? But I'm going to do everything I can to make sure they're not. Um, I'm going to fix this and that that is almost when the parent tries to put all the responsibility of fixing this situation on themselves mm-hmm. and then they're blaming themselves and then they burn out that's you'll see a very different type of um situation when you're working with the family i i think the way i was thinking about it was just that uh at least the the clients that we get where i work um a lot of times it, you know, the environment that they're coming from is not necessarily a productive environment. It's either neglectful or there's violence in the house or they're in an area where there's a lot of drug use going on, things of that nature. And so the parent is caught up in the mental health diagnosis, whether they realize it or not. And I I don't know, I'm just thinking that maybe they're a little less likely to accept something as easy as playing a game uh, when they only see it as that versus something that looks like the kind of mumbo-jumbo that they expect from the magician that is therapist coming to oh the house gosh. to fix their child. <laughs> Let my magical words heal you. Exactly, exactly. <laughs> you know, we have parents who bring the child into the shop, and they want us to put the child on the rack. They want us to yep. turn a few gears, bring the child back down, send them back home. Everything's hunky-dory. All, all good. Yep, uh, come that... back for your 30000 Oh, we see, um, we see that a lot too, you know, like you, you see that, I think, in every part of the field. Um, one of the things, though, like to bounce off of what you're saying regarding environment and what I'm, what I'm finding interesting is, is that so some of these, these children need as many services as possible, right? Yeah. And I think what happens is, is that there's an, there's almost like an enemy for the family because they could they could target the schools sure be like well you're not providing everything you're supposed to provide for my child and i think that dynamic does change things a lot um and i'm i'm they're justified like <laughs> the parents are completely justified in this <laughs> right like, i'm not saying they're not holy cow the crap i've seen but um i think it it creates a almost an 
an us versus them mm-hmm. that isn't necessarily always there with like what you're saying with um, oppositional defiant or conduct mm-hmm. disorder. Um, you can it's easier to just blame the kid, right? Well, you're being a jerk. Yeah. Yeah. Rather than you're a born demon. Yeah. Oh yeah. Yeah. Exactly. <laughs> you know. Um. Yeah. That, that's 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 a different feel. You know, I just had kind of a brainstorm when you talked about that, just this idea that, you know, we're talking about trying to apply gaming to therapeutic situations, and you're talking about uh, them seeing sort of an us-against-them mentality against the school, against the defects workers, against uh, whatever social structure that they can pin the, the problem on. And I'm wondering how beneficial it would be to construct uh, maybe a role-playing game around the idea of we're going to battle the big boss and we're going to work towards battling the big boss and the big boss is going to be battled by doing these things and then we relate those things to the various things that they can do in basic everyday life in order to actually combat the big boss which right now maybe their big boss is the school maybe their big boss is defects or the lawyers that are coming down on them or the the environment they're in anything like that and I'm wondering how that could be a helpful process for the family and the child in, in situations where everybody can cognitively function in this sort of role-playing environment it might be helpful to uh, sort of put something like that. I'm a big fan of uh, using games as the mirror or the metaphor for what's going on in the person's life. So we've kind of seen that almost in, in, in reverse uh, where playing something like the quiet here. Uh, I, I don't know if you're familiar with The Quiet Year, but it's I'm a not, game. But I want to know all about it now. Oh, you're going to do. You're <laughs> going to love it. It it is a a map storytelling game. Uh, I think that's the proper way to describe yeah, what it is. I, I uh, mean, sometimes I'll say cartography, yeah. and then you'll okay. find maybe two or three other games that have the same mechanic. So uh, you're supposed to use a piece of paper, uh, and you're asked like a few prompts in the beginning about you know what kind of society do you live in and uh what is it what does the world look like to you um how many people are in your um your Your society or your town or village Mm -hmm. and you're asked a bunch of prompts along the way everyone gets a turn and you're you're asked a question like um so, for example, somebody, a, a, a young, someone like a, a, like a teenager did sure. something in the village that now they either have to be cast out of the village or severely punished. Now, if you severely punish them, what does that look like? How does that affect everybody who's, who's here? If you cast her out, who does she take with her? So there's a lot of interesting questions like that. And the most interesting part about the game that a lot of people don't think is interesting is the the idea that there's contempt tokens. And you can take, anyone can reach into the middle of the table at any time whenever they feel something is affecting the community. And you're never actually playing a person in the community, you're playing the council of a community. And you're representing a part of the that community and you can take contempt because I don't like what that person just did. And like whatever just happened in the community, I don't like it. And I'm going to take a few contempt tokens because of it. And later on, as things are are maybe improving or that situation was fixed, uh, you can give those contempt tokens back. And it creates this idea of, oh, someone did something bad and I don't like it. 
like, I need to show this. I, I need to tell someone, like, I don't like that. And it's a very soft way to introduce that. The interesting part with it, too, is that we have clients who, for lack of a better term, right, they don't know how to empathize. They mm -hmm. have trouble um, registering, for example, the facial response that somebody else has. But now I can see this contempt beat in front of you. And you took that right after I took my action on my turn. What did I do that caused yeah. that? Yeah. Mm -hmm. And and also going back to what we we're saying and, and the reverse of what you said, uh, we got to see a client uh, implement in, into the game. And, and this client was is very low verbal. Uh, he is very, he's an excellent artist. I will say that. Mm -hmm. uh, he is in the game putting through what is going on in his life and expressing that through the game. And it was a very like uh, interesting moment to see that happen in, in, in the game itself, to see how they were putting themselves into the game and their emotions behind what they were doing into the game. Yeah, completely caught us off guard. Like, um, yeah, completely caught us off guard because if you was to ask the the client directly, um, how was your day? It would never have come out. If you would ask anything specifically about the mother or the home, it would never have come out. But on their turn, they were like. There's a, you know, there's a problem there and they're drawing the house. There's a problem in the house with the mother um, and she's mad. I mean, for that, that for, for this kid, that may have been a novel as yeah. far as how much information like we're, we're getting in that, in that session. And, yeah. and the most interesting part about it is that as the game went on over the next few weeks, uh, it, that story progressed for him. And he further told that story as we were playing. And we got to see how he was thinking of that and how he was trying to uh, process, it. process it and get over what, what happened. That's amazing. Yeah. Um, you know, when I, 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 I don't have the, the research background in terms of trying to identify how games work in therapy sessions. I can say that I was uh, an ethical experimenter on my mm. clients mm -hmm. in the in the sense that I would I would try different things that I knew had had a clear kind of a definition at the end that would have been in some way therapeutic for who I was talking to, whether it was we're just playing Suro and we're using Suro as a means of talking about making choices or or whatever it might have been, and the thing that. I, I guess caught me off guard just as well as it's caught you off guard is this idea that when people are engaged in play that all the defensiveness that was previously present all that stuff that keeps uh, you know that that ego that sort of keeps the rest of my hurt self and the rest of my my pain at bay is out of the way I'm now enjoying myself and I, I don't think that the hard shell exterior that we try to present to the world is as stable when we're in play. Things bleed out, and yeah. as a result, we get to see what it is someone's going through, especially if we can put on a clinical set of glasses and say, ooh, that's, that's very 
That's very interesting. I didn't see that before, and I wouldn't have gotten that from direct questioning. Yeah. Which is, I guess, the point in art therapy. It's the point in music therapy. It's the point in almost any expressive therapy that there is. And I think games, as a result of being play-oriented, bring that same thing forward. Now, I have, even within the play therapy community, I have seen some uh, kickback regarding, like, how board gaming is to be used in therapy. Hmm. Um. So, and, and the reason I bring it up is it goes back to like, what is your goal when you're using this tool? Think of the game itself as the tool, right? Right. And if you're coming from it from a child-centered, person-centered approach or a child-centered play therapy ap- approach, then you're not choosing what game they're playing, they're choosing, right? Yeah. Because it's person-centered and they're leading it all the way. Yeah. So then you're wind up, and, and then the way they interact is, is different. I, I, so what I'm starting to see is, okay, I'm a lot more directive than I thought I was, especially in this setting. Um, mm-hmm. I'm definitely, it's one thing for me to say that I'm CBT. It's another thing to be like, well, by comparison to everything else, yeah, that's what you are. Um, but what, what we're seeing is, is in order to better describe what we're doing, we have to focus on what skills we're developing. Yeah. Now, if we, if so, you take your modality and you toss that out the window because you're going to have your modality. You're going to have your, the- your theoretical approach you're going to have by the time you're licensed, you sh- or you should probably have that, right? Mm-hmm. Um, but even after having the license and even after having your theoretical approach, how are you describing what you're doing? And I think when we change the mindset to um, what skills you're developing with the client, what skills you're developing with the child and the parent, that changes things a lot. So when you take a game like Suro, off the top of my head, I'm like pattern recognition, Mm -hmm. short-term and long-term planning, um, coping skills, turn-taking. You could start like, you could start boiling that down to the core essence of what social emotional learning is and if you focus on that and you you know you really it's one thing to focus on the game mechanics and i really do think game mechanics and understanding that helps us understand how to use the games um therapeutically but then it's also okay what skills are being developed while you're playing that game yeah interestingly we're talking about sorrow and and we use sorrow a lot and we had a client who really likes to tell stories. So okay. we started playing Sorrow and we started telling a story as the game was going. And instead of playing Sorrow the normal way where you're, you're trying to be the last one, uh, like standing pretty much, we were playing it as we need to connect our stories and how do we do that? What is the point of your story? What are you trying to tell in your story? And what am I trying to tell in my story? And how do we connect them? And we're telling the story as we're moving the pieces along along the track. How do we get there? And and what is, what what happens when we get there? That's that's a way I've never used Suro. I love that. We do a lot of modifying here. Yeah, <laughs> constantly trying to modify games. Yeah, um, Carcassonne, believe it or not, has been a clutch. You know what Carcassonne is for me. <laughs> 
It is the cheapest infinite jigsaw puzzle I have ever seen. (laughs) (laughs) Because with some of my clients, it's like, are they going to understand the mechanics of the game? No, that's not happening. Okay. Will they understand how the pieces fit together? Yes. Okay, fine. When they're playing this, when they're doing jigsaw puzzles, their repetitive self-talk, their self-stimulating behaviors are extinguished while they're playing this. Mm -hmm. So I'm going to strip the game away and use it for its parts, right? Yeah, and the interesting part, not even interesting, but the best part of it is that you don't have to do cleanup of a a giant jigsaw puzzle. It's just picking up a few tiles and putting them away instead of having to set it up and then the next time the client comes, the puzzle's not there because we had to break it down. Right. When, when I first started trying to do this in home, right, um, and it's like, well, you're just playing with, with, with my child. I was mm-hmm. like, okay, fine. You're right. I'm just playing with your child. When was the last time he repeated the same word he says like 10 times in a row? When was the last time that he repeated? So when I first started in the field and I was just working with the general population, it was, can I create a situation where things aren't always bad because some of uh, my CBT training is rational, emotional, behavioral therapy, right? Right. So are we seeing that it's awful? Like, are we awfulizing, right? Mm -hmm. Once I can create a situation where, oh, hey, you you were playing with me today and you seem to be happy. So there was at least one happy thing today. Okay, right. so your day wasn't all bad. So with someone who has a higher cognitive level, that's going to be that's going to be where I build a foundation for therapeutic change. Now, when you look at um, a kid who's low verbal or a kid has these self-stimulating behaviors, and I'm trying to educate the parent as well, it's you told me your child is always doing this behavior. They're and they do it every day. They do it constantly and they don't stop well for the last hour i didn't see that behavior oh you know and then then sometimes you know people would say oh well you know maybe the medication was working today right i'm back next week and now after doing this for a couple months i'm going to have him do this in front of you while you're here and slowly start pulling the parent in as well but Uh because you this thing that you said never stops, you just watched for a half an hour where, so I'll give, give you the example that I'm thinking of. The client will never stop saying the mom, mom, mother, mom, mother, you know, and will constantly uh-huh. repeat, constantly ask, ask for, ask for water, ask to use the bathroom. But during that period, once he's in that state of flow, all that behavior is gone. So now I'm with the, with the mother and now we're brainstorming because you've got to see what works. What else can we do to repeat that and, and get that to happen again? This kind of reminds me of the musician who's like he's 86, 90 years old and he walks with a frail walk and he has a, a very uh, slow demeanor and maybe doesn't even speak as clearly as he'd like to. But then he's got this history of being a piano player and you set him down in front of piano player and suddenly he's supple and moving and he's in that flow state and you see the difference in that very moment as to what's happening. And that that's what's happening in these games with these children then. 
yeah. is that they're they're abandoning these uh, uh, repetitive behaviors because now yep. they're getting into something that's opening the door a little wider for them to experience the world. A good example of that is um, we played No Thank You Evil, hmm. right? I need to know so much more about that game. I'm so excited about that game, and yet I still haven't <laughs> learned anything. Oh, my gosh, it's good. It, it is very it, – it's doing what we want to do. We, we've been trying to um, get a feel for another game that's saying what we want to say, uh-huh. but it, it's not quite there. Like, we don't, have the, we don't have the system down enough yet to really start trying to use it in a session. Okay. But we were doing um, No Thank You Evil, right? Mm-hmm. And, like, the example you gave about that – about that pianist, right? Same thing with this kid. You put a crayon, a paper in front of them while doing a storytelling game. And, hey, you know what? If you would, again, ask him about his day, you would have gotten a one-word answer. If you asked him what was going on in the game with that crayon and, pencil, and crayon and paper in front of them, they're drawing a dragon that is their pet in the game yep. that they're bringing with them to help save other people. And, and the interesting part also in that, in that aspect is they're also drawing every little part that everyone is talking about. So if there's a bee, like if there's a queen bee who you're getting a quest from, that he's drawing this queen bee and implementing it into the story on his page. So uh, have you played Luminera? I've, I've played just a very minor amount of, like maybe two sessions of Numenera, maybe three. So It was I, fascinating. I loved it. I absolutely love Numenera, and I got to play it a few times at a con. And I went home, and I started doing some research, and I said, there's a kid's version? And that's pretty much No Thank You Evil. And it's it's a stripped-down version of, of Numenera, and it I, I just think it works so well. Yeah. yeah it, it, it really fit with what we were trying to do um mm-hmm. we did hit some bumps in the road when we were using it um but it has such a strong cooperative mechanic and it rewards you so much for helping others yeah that it is a very good training tool to teach appropriate social interactions yeah uh, especially like if you if you're looking for help from other people you need to learn to be nice to them because no one wants to help someone that isn't nice to them and you get to see some of that happen in, in a session of No Thank You Evil because now everyone's being nice except for this one person. He doesn't wanna he doesn't wanna help anyone else in the group. And no one else wants to help him when he needs the help. And you get to see where they start to realize that. Yeah. And it's really interesting. It, it's similar to um Catan Jr. Mm-hmm. Catan Jr. um I finally got to use it in a session a couple weeks ago, and it was one of those, well, why does no one want to trade with me? Yeah. Because you bullied everybody else on the table as soon as you could. And so we talked about how to, how would you go about fixing that? How would you go about mending that? Yeah, you want to win the game, but it's it's back to our REBT. It's what you're doing helping or hurting you in this moment. You want to win, but the behaviors and the actions you're taking are hurting you. And are actually, you're further away from winning now than what you were before. So you guys went to Metatopia. You have all these great ideas, and you talked to some game designers. 
and and my guess is there was in my mind I see this this amazing like aha moments going on between you and the game designers like you're getting ideas from them they're getting ideas from you it may not be as wonderfully animated as I see it in my mind <laughs> it, but is. it, it is. really is it, it is. is really okay so because yeah. you're you're collaborating now on a game or you're helping someone to develop a game that 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 takes into effect all the things you're learning as a result of your study of play therapy and your your time with clients What's the outcome? Did you guys come up with some idea that you're going to work on? Is there something well, there, that you ended up putting in somebody else's game? There, there's definitely a few ideas that we're working on, um, especially uh, Brian has had a really good idea for, for um, how would you describe that? Which, because we've been talking about <laughs> well, yeah, it. Well, yeah, it is true. Um, the multi-generational. Uh, so we have, with the population that we have here, um, it even came up today, the idea of immigration issues and how does that how does that not just affect you right now, but how does that affect your family? Uh, without mm-hmm. getting too lost in the politics of today. Sure. Um, yeah, we open that. We're just it's a little <laughs> bit. Um, but I had a family come in today, and they were like, "We don't know if we could accept your services." And mm. I didn't understand why. And they're like, we're afraid to receive help um, for these services. My child desperately needs it. He's, you know, he's autistic um, because I'm an immigrant and we don't know how that's going to affect uh, my ability to become a citizen. Wow. Okay. So how do you tell that story in a game? And then how do you tell that story um, that's talking about not just what you went through, but what your grandparents went through and what your kids are going to go through? Um, it was an idea that's been percolating since last Metatopia. Yeah. Um, and unfortunately, we had a couple deaths in my family. So, and one of them was a key person that I probably would have like drawn information from as far and, as an inspiration yeah, yeah. an inspiration mm-hmm. um you know, and that affected my family in such a way where okay now i really i'm really gonna have to wait a little bit longer before i come back to this again okay. because i really want their input uh because i feel like this isn't just um a game it's like you're telling the story of your family and so i feel like in order for me to make this game I have to know how to tell the story of my own family. Yeah, so I mean, what what our ideas off of it is is telling the story of, of of generations and what they go through, their struggles and their triumphs through through generations, and having each person at the table being a different generation and telling the story through making a map and expanding a map and showing where they lived, where they migrate from where they migrate to and how they expand upon what they've done in their lives through the map. Uh, again, I think that cartography, the visual processing, I think it's a really uh, strong gateway. Um, at, if you would have asked me a couple, even a couple weeks ago, I would have mm-hmm. said that, you know, the cartography is a strong gateway into like getting to that flow and that level of play we're looking for. Uh, but I'm starting to really feel that the cartography, the sand tray, um, 
it's connecting to the same thing that EMDR does, and, and it's really connecting to that unconsciousness that it's it's being pulled up, it's being pulled to the surface, and it's through play. And maybe you're not ready to process that right now. That's fine. You know, a part of you is, and a part of you is doing that through how you're playing. Um, but back to Metatopia, um, yeah, we have so. For us, it's been a lot of play testing yeah. uh, at Metatopia, and I, a lot of networking as well. Yeah, mm-hmm. and I really like the idea of sitting down, looking at, at what your game is doing, and how could that help the people I'm trying to help. So there's a lot of that. A lot of um, this last year, we've been asked to help consult more um, than in previous years. Um, there's a couple projects that are being worked on right now that um, like I, we could we could say that like dream chasers came out um pete petrucia is that how yeah you said yeah, pete petrucia? yeah we yeah. did an interview with pete um we have we've, we've known pete from metatopia since like we've been going to metatopia for like the last five years we have an interesting story about pete is uh the first time we met pete was the first year that both well, all three of us were going to metatopia and we started going to a bunch of panels. We were so interested in like all this stuff that, you know, all the game design, all the business end of game design and, and mm-hmm. how it can connect with therapy and how can we connect it? And like, where, where are all these connections at? Let's find them. And we, we were sitting down in all these panels. And I, I kept seeing this guy in the room in every single panel that we were sitting in, he would be there. And I, and I looked <laughs> at Brian and I said, I feel like this guy is following us, like joking around. And by the end of the, the, that first year of Metatopia, we went up to him and we made a joke about like him following us around, sneaking around and 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 like kind of just following us. And every year since then, uh, it's been like a run on joke about, hey, who's going to sneak up on who this time and <laughs> where are we going to be? Uh, so Pete, I mean, we, we've known him for about four, for five, four five or years five now. years now. Yeah. Yeah. And um he's asked us to consult with him about uh, one of the projects that he's currently working on, which I don't know if we should say exactly what that project is yet, but uh, he's, he's working on something new uh, with, um, I, I don't remember his name off the top of my head. Yeah. Uh, he has someone else working on the design and redesigning uh, Dream Chasers in a way. Yeah. So it's oh, very wow. interesting. Okay. Yeah. So, so I need to get Pete back on and find out more about this then. Oh yeah, yeah because we we had like we just had a meeting. How long were we talking for? Uh, probably probably like two or three hours. It felt yeah. like yeah. <laughs> we were just because he was just mining us for information. So I was like, hey, yeah, man, like go ahead, like we're gonna creep you later on. <laughs> so <laughs> who's gonna creep you lurk now? <laughs> yeah. So um, and it was for me. I find that to be very fun. I. I that is a unique experience I get to have at, um, at Metatopia. One of the other things that I think from getting to meet people at Metatopia and game designers um, that inspired us is we when we had our podcast, we had uh, Chris from Greater Than Games on. Yeah. And I was sitting there, we, we were talking about like, just how geeking out pretty much about yeah. sentinels and multiverse yeah yeah we were talking about how quicksilver went to therapy and like what would i do with quicksilver <laughs> and therapist you know and um but you know we talked about how stressful you know everything is and he's like well you know owning your own business is like the best board game 
you could ever play. Yeah, it really is. Yeah, and I was like, once I he said that to me, and I really like absorbed that. I looked at Tim. I was like, Nah, man. I, I think I think we got to start going it's, in on it's this. It's definitely time. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. It's a worker placement game. Oh god, and I hate worker <laughs> yeah, placement games. We, we both absolutely hate worker placement games, but oh we we live one. Yeah, yeah. Oh, god. Uh, I love worker placement games, but I don't do so well with playing my worker placement life. <laughs> well, okay. So wait, which one is your like your favorite worker placement game? Oh man, that that's uh that's tough. But I think uh right now Champions of Midgard probably has the top level. I have to think about it. no, no uh. Palette, uh, Architects of the West Kingdom. See, that is and, my favorite worker placement right now. And look, look at Tim shaking his head. Tim is shaking his head right now because um, <laughs> we, we, I don't even know what those games are because of worker placement games. <laughs> we have a, we have a joke in the office, right? We had this kid come up to us and be like, "Wow, you guys have every type of game here." I was like, "No, we don't. <laughs> <laughs> we don't have worker placement games." <laughs> I, I think I do own one that I we, really like. We we do have a few games that could be considered what, worker placement what you, games. Would you consider Evolution a work replacement game? No, that's uh, no. Oh, so then nope. There's no work placement game. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, Evolution. That's more of a like I'm gonna build my engine. And it's gonna. It's a lot it of takes. That's, that's why I like it. It's an engine. I, I like it because I like building engines. I like engine and, games. And in yeah. a sense, worker placements can be an engine building game if you can see it that way, because you're just trying to get into a position that is effective enough that you're gonna get the resources you need. See, but for me, like part of the problem with that is that. Um, the outside of chess magic the gathering like really influenced like my gaming right yeah um and i was always playing like white weenie decks like so i i I need that fast like i'm gonna find out if i'm gonna crash and burn (laughs) right now um and that doesn't always happen in games (laughs) especially worker placement games it's it's that long haul you know you, you need to you need to see where the game's gonna go. And... I get I get blamed for like tossing the game into complete chaos. <laughs> and I forgot what game they they say that that's what I do. Uh, kill Doctor Lucky. That's Ooh. what it is. Oh, okay. Mm-hmm. Toss that thing into so much chaos that it's like, all right, um, I'll win now. <laughs> Nobody else's strategy is working, right? Okay, I can win. <laughs> You know, Scythe is a worker placement to an extent as well. I don't oh, know so my Scythe. little Scythe. I knew we had something. <laughs> Damn it, we haven't. Okay, we haven't brought up my little Scythe yet. Go ahead, man. So, <laughs> my little Scythe is, is is interesting because we uh, Brian's never played Scythe before, and I was like, oh, you know, I kind of like Scythe. I only played it once or twice, and I kind of liked it. And I said, I really think it would be good for the kids, but. I don't know if that version of it will be good. Let's try to get the, the, the kids' version of this and see if it'll work. So I'm like, all right, dude, you're going to have to sell me on this, right? And Because <laughs> it's still an expensive game. Oh, yeah. It's not yeah, like it size, is. You know, All those miniatures. Oh, my gosh. So I'm starting to think, and he's talking to me about it, and I was like, you know what I really want? I want like a Civilization game because I like Civ. You know, like I, I, they, I don't. We don't have the Civ board game here because we would need like a week of sessions and like <laughs> packed up together in a row, right? Yeah. But he's like, yeah, it's just like Civ, yeah, uh-huh. but it, yeah, but it's for kids. We're good. <laughs> That's how I sold them on it. Yep. <laughs> yep. 
It worked. It worked. And holy cow, that worked with the clients. <laughs> holy cow, that worked. It, it's That's interesting. Excellent. So how did you use it? How did it, how did it work? Have you ever got to play the uh, My Little Sites yet? Yeah, yeah, I have it on my shelf. So, so it's interesting, like the whole sharing mechanic, you know, giving, and that aspect of it is really interesting with a bunch of clients who maybe nonverbal and maybe uh-huh. don't like to share. You know, to okay. see them start to have the idea of doing that is really interesting. Or like, I'm going to have a pie fight. Yeah. All right. You're going to have a pie fight. Um, The interesting thing is, I think we've only ever seen that happen once. Yeah. The pie fight. We've only seen the actual conflict part, the pie fight, ever happen once. And and maybe out of like 30 gameplays. Yeah, we've played the the game quite more than I thought we were going to. uh, Because I honestly thought we were going to be able to play like cross masters or something like that. And it seems like this is almost a, a better fit. We're not there with Crossmasters yet. Uh-huh. Um, but it was like, all right, wait, I, I can have magic and I can have apples and I can have gems. And like, it's all these other things. And what, you know, what sold it to me was the quest. Cause you could choose to do yeah. something good. You could choose mm-hmm. to do something neutral. You could choose to do something bad, but it doesn't always benefit you to do something bad. So then now you got to make a decision. Do you want to be the bad guy the whole way through and lose the game? Or do you want to kind of make that trade where I got to do something good for you to kind of stay in the game? Yeah, it really comes down to like sharing and being helpful, you know, and and that's what I really like about that game. Yeah, my little slice. When I I saw that, I thought that was an excellent port over to, to childhood because it was... It was so like obviously the mechanics are the same, but it was so different in theme that it yeah. it, it just made it work. I haven't and played I, I love like that the giving full to version. other people piece. Yeah, I, I haven't played the full version yet. So like being introduced to like the my little scythe, we're gonna have um an open another open house like game day, and I'm hoping maybe I could pull people in for the full version of scythe. <laughs> Mind you, we do have the full version. We just for okay. months now and still have not been able to play it. Yeah, it, just, it needs to hit the table. Yeah. It, it's amazing. It, it's not, you it know, is. it's got a lot of hype right now, and I think it's got a lot of hype right now because it's such a beautiful game. It is a fantastic looking game. Um, this, this, the story is good, um, but it's I think just to, we get really be. excited about the way that people theme things up. I, I'm kind of like Tom Vassell. I think yep. theme is a pretty yeah, big yep. deal when it comes to games. I want to be immersed in the world. And that's what I think Scythe lives on. I, I the game agree itself with is that 100%. pretty. The the game itself is pretty mechanical. Like you could build an engine, you can you place your workers, you do your thing, and a lot of times I feel like it ends too quickly because I've just now got my engine working, and oh nope, mm. somebody else got their engine working better. Um, but uh, the story is fascinating, and the way it's put together is fascinating. So it does it does come up there towards the top of my list just as a result of that. I am very worried about like the whole cult of the new within the office <laughs> and that's something that's been really hard to fight against because it's pretty easy to get drawn into okay what's the newest version of this game yeah and well we could fill all our shelves with all these new things but okay well this kid might actually do better with monopoly jr you know, I, yeah. I really think like a lot of the the junior versions of games like lately 
within the last few years that have come out uh, really stripped down games to their core mechanics without all the extra stuff and make it so much easier to play and understand for kids. And it's still doing the same thing. Like Monopoly Junior, you can play it within an hour. Okay. I, I, can't, minutes. I, I can't even minutes. imagine a game of regular Monopoly going for like under an hour. The mechanics are just different enough. Like a lot of the junior versions of these games are, it's because it's, we're going back to what skills being developed, right? Yeah. Now I could develop the same skill in four hours or try to do it in the actual amount of time of a session. Yeah. Um, and so that's where the junior versions, like Ticket to Ride Junior, I don't like Ticket to Ride. I, I play it for my friends. I've, okay. I've played it over the years. Thank you. Yeah. <laughs> but uh ticket to ride junior i found to be pretty good and i've i've, I've used it in session you know okay. i think I, my clients love it and it's teaching them some of the um some of the skills i want them to learn so you, you talked about cult of the new and i i just have to i i think so we've we talked a bit about cult of the new on on the show by the way just all listeners we've mentioned monopoly now you can go ahead and drink <laughs> oh, I'm sorry, guys. I apologize. Um, but Cult of the New, so, uh, and I know we need to wrap up soon, but Cult of the New, the, I guess the thing I would think in terms of building your game library is you are just providing many more windows for other people to look into and see what they might like. My experience with clients is that, at least for my time with clients, most of them didn't know about the games that I knew about. They weren't exposed to them. And so in terms of what geek therapy is and in terms of this idea of being culturally competent and trying to make sure that we're meeting the client where they're at, I was offering them a bridge more than giving, more than taking something from them. And I'd never forced anybody to play anything, but I said, would you like to try to play this game? Here's how this, play, this game works. Um, if you try it and don't like it, we'll just shut it down and we won't do it. Um, but what I found was if I bring in new stuff to a child who is already having a deficit of good experiences, I, I'm quickly turning them over to a, a different space in our session from this is a therapy session to I'm learning how to play a game and I'm enjoying learning how to play the game. And then once we learn how to play the game and they enjoyed it and I bring it back another time, then we might say, okay, now we're going to talk about what your experience in the game is like because I want to know more. I really enjoy this game. Let's see how you enjoy this game. Um, so the cult, to me, the cult of the new, you're, you're offering a, a wider spectrum of possibilities for your clients uh, in terms of being a part of the cult of the new, because I have a game shelf that's uh, a little bit overwhelming right now, and <laughs> I have lots of uh, shrink-wrapped games on my shelf, I'm mm. ashamed to say. We have a few, um, too. It, it's, uh, I, I, somebody said it recently, and I think I'm tending to agree collecting games and being a game player might be two different hobbies. <laughs> um, but I'm, I'm excited because I know that in any given time, even though I haven't played all those games on my shelf, I can say, okay, tonight we're going to try to do this. Tonight we're going to do this. Or, or to, later on today I'm going to read about this so I can play this. And so there's always an, an awesome new thing. The one thing we miss from that, unfortunately, is that we don't get to build a regular base of strategy in the other games. But it, I guess it depends on what you're looking for from the game. Are you looking for a momentary challenge? Are you looking for something that's going to force you to be to to build your skills in one game area? Are you looking for a social situation that has some kind of unique properties? 
there's so much possibility there. So I, I, I take your cult of the new uh, statement as something that we all need to be aware of, but I, I wanted to address it just because I, I think uh, I deal with that argument in my head on a regular basis, I'm, whether or not I'm, it's worthwhile. I'm forced to fight with it more now. I didn't even have to think about it in that way until I started doing the play therapy trainings. Sure. Like that wasn't even like something on my radar. Like we, we were starting to get our games together to, for, for the office before even starting to buy anything. Just on my own, I had like over 100 games. Yeah, and the same with me. So yeah. it was like, all right, fine, you know, and then we, we create the office and now we're buying a whole bunch of new games that are fitting these different areas that we're trying to target because, um, of, again, what skills are we going to develop? We need more cooperative games because Forbidden Island and Pandemic aren't enough, mm -hmm. you know? Yeah. Um, but one of the things that I've been wrestling with is... The idea that um, within play therapy, they they'll say that be selective, not collective. Ah, that's interesting. Okay. And so that's making me change what what am I doing with my collection in here? Um, I, I, I'm wrestling with that now. Like I'm thinking about that a lot now because we have like in the office we have over a hundred RPGs and okay. over a like a hundred RPGs and storytelling games and over a hundred um, board games. And so, you know, we have them separated uh, on different sides of the office, but it's also, at what point is that overwhelming for the clients? How many of those games can I really use with clients between the ages of two and six? And you're gonna walk and into like, a game room and have analysis paralysis just in terms of choosing what you need to choose. Yes. Yeah. Yes. And, and sometimes you'll see it's interesting too, because some of the themes are reaching to younger audiences and the game is is not meant for that age yeah oh yeah and but then if you've got an office full of games and you're trying to be selective about each child and each child has their own sort of we'll call it like some kind of gamer archetype mm -hmm. you have to set like you've got that 10 minutes between your 50 minute session and the end and you're like okay now i gotta move this out of here and i gotta get this out of here and put this in here and arrange this so that this is you're you're almost selectively creating a catalog that's just for the child that's in front of you. That that's a harder thing to do, I think, than yeah, just setting up a hundred games. It, it's it's definitely this crazy balance that you need to have. You need to have enough to to appeal to everyone, but you also don't want to have so much that it's overwhelming. And then, and the, then like, we're in the space of having to. You know, I think you guys are doing some of this, um, and you probably know about the Geek Therapy Library, which is all about kind of cataloging media experiences so that we can easily access them in order to use them in therapeutic or other teaching situations. My realization is, okay, yeah, we've got all these games. Now how do we sort of, okay, does this diagnosis match with this game? Does this particular child match with this game? And how do we create a, like almost a database of well, the child has a deficit in this, that, and the other. What game is best? And then the computer turns back. Here's the five best games for this particular thing because of all your, all the work that you've done to catalog the game and make sense of the game. Yeah. That's, yeah, that's where I hope we're headed, but I think it's a really hard thing, especially when you go to Gen Con and there's 260 new games introduced into, into our brotherhood uh, just this year. And then Essen's going to come up and, and really just uh, over, Blow everything overwhelm away. that. <laughs> yeah. That's where I think... Um, Something like a, like BGG, right? 
yeah. if we go to BTG and we focus on the mechanic, right? Okay, the mechanic and the play style, like for example, it could be a card drafting game, right? But mm -hmm. then you're also uh, doing it cooperatively. Okay, like so for example, it would be Hero Realm. Hero Realm would be the example of that. You're drafting cards, you're trying to beat a boss together, yeah. and um, it is a cooperative game, even though there can be some of the take that element, but you can get rid of that, right? Okay, yeah. Um, so the card drafting, that would be, you're looking at the cost, cost and benefit analysis. Mm -hmm. Is it, you know, how much does this card mm -hmm. cost? How much does it benefit me? Uh, the cooperative, with, like the cooperative gameplay mechanic is focusing on more, you could use that more as, okay, that's the social skills that are being learned. How are you doing that through the gameplay as well? You know? And what do those social skills look like in that game? Yeah. Yeah. I, I'm just, I'm still just so excited about the work you guys are doing. Um, you're making it work. You're making it happen. And uh, trying. <laughs> well, we all are. And, yeah. and so the yeah. more we bring people together and create a community around this idea, you know, last year, not last year, year before last, I went to PAX Unplugged for the first time. And I was blown away by the presence of mental health professionals at PAX Unplugged. I was just floored. And I yeah. met so many great people there. And I, I made lasting friendships that have become continued like we're building community around this idea of using games whether they're board games video games larps role-playing games in our therapeutic sessions and that's just i'm just excited that there's this group of us who are out there doing this working yeah, on we, this the, working on the project yeah, that's <laughs> what it is. and it's a lifelong project it really too. is yeah it's like our masterpiece that we're all like trying to find our role in, in in like just making this tapestry that somehow not that we just fit in but all of our clients and the the wide like populations that we're working with how do they all fit into this this thing that we're working on and and talking about packs on plug we we went last year for our first time and uh -huh. we felt the same way like going to some of the panels and like seeing how many mental health professionals were there it was it was overwhelming because yeah. I don't expect to see that. I mean, not to overstate it, it, it really did change things for us. Yeah. Um, it, at it Metatopia, that, what happened? It, it changed things for me. Um, oh, yeah. Going to PAX Unplugged because I met Jack Birkenstock and yep. and his wife from uh, Bodana Group, and I met uh, the Game to Grow guys for the first time. Josue was there with me. Uh, Josue and Brian and I presented at a panel at PAX um, we met uh, um, the gentleman from Take That, Take This. Yeah. Um, so many Dr. people, B. and yeah. just like I was looking at the list of panels that I could go to, and I couldn't make it to all the mental health-based panels that I wanted to because yeah. they were up against each other. Yeah, we're we're actually hoping to present this year at, at uh, Pax Unplugged and hopefully at uh, Metatopia something. We're proposing things that right now. Excellent. And so we are also hoping to present at PAX Unplugged. We're just waiting to hear. Yeah. Just on the edge of our seats. Nice. Wondering if we should go ahead and buy the plane tickets. I think we're just going to go ahead and buy the <laughs> oh plane tickets gosh. anyway because I want to be at PAX Unplugged. Yes. <laughs> yes. Um, we So PAX last year was like, oh my gosh. So we had to, I, we had to be convinced to go. Like at yeah. Metatopia. Yeah. They were like, you guys need to go. You guys need to go. And we're just like, ah. Uh, you know, I, I've, I've done enough Comic-Cons, you know, I'm like, I've done yeah. enough big cons, I'm, I'm, I'm good. 
and they're like, no, there's going to be a ton of panels. This is what you're looking for. Go. So yeah, yeah definitely. Like uh, we're we're uh, we're friends with Ninth Level Games, and uh, we we were talking to them one night at after Metatopia's ended, and and we're eating, and they're like, listen, you guys have to go to Pax Unplugged. There, there's no question. You have to go. I don't care if we have to drag you there. I got pulled into uh, an impromptu video panel. <laughs> about multiculturalism and gaming last Metatopia. And so I'm sitting there just we're talking for like maybe two hours straight. And um, afterwards, I'm talking to one of the guys and I'm like, so you think I, I, I got to go? And he said, listen, there's no question about it. You got to go. Yeah. Like, you have to go. <laughs> it's all we kept hearing from everyone at Metatopia. You have to go to this guy. So we go. And I'm like, and, and you know how it is, man. Your your budget is tight to begin with. Yeah. You're out there. <laughs> you're like trying to stay close enough, afford to stay close enough to actually get to the con. Um, and then we go and I'm like, oh, wait, they're going to have a training on like applied RPGs. I've never yeah. been to the West Coast. After PAX um, Unplugged, I flew to Seattle in January for a Dr. B's training. Oh, wow. Excellent. Completely worth it. I think I may have been the only person from the East Coast. Um, may have been one other person there. Wow. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, that's that's the way it. I feel right now about going to Save Against Fear. I've just, I, I just talked to, to uh, Jack of the Bodana Group just uh, last week, actually. And started learning about Save Against Fear, and I'm like, okay, I gotta be there, I gotta be there, and I, I feel the same way about getting up to to the Game to Grow workshops because I, I want to get all of this, I want to gain all the knowledge and kind of put it in my own little percolator and yep. see how I fit into this, uh, into all these definitions and how I come out on the other side. So I, there's so much exciting going so on. So are we gonna see you? Are we gonna here. see you at Save? Uh, that is my plan is to be at Save Against Fear. I like that plan. Yeah, that's awesome. We're, <laughs> we're actually sponsoring um, uh, Doug Lewowski, is it? I, I hope I'm pronouncing his name right, from um, Kids on Bikes. Uh, we're actually sponsoring him to, to go there. Oh, excellent. Okay. Yeah. I knew he was going to be there, and so now I know how he's getting there. That's awesome. <laughs> I, I'm looking forward to <laughs> We bench played Kids on Bikes yeah, during uh, DexCon. loved it. So okay. I was like, yeah, I'll, 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 I want to see this. <laughs> well, guys, uh, we definitely are hitting the end of our time here. I want to thank you so much for spending the time with me. I feel like we could probably talk forever yeah. um, because we've all got so much to say. And there's, there's, uh, we're, we're, we're going to have talks like this in the future, whether it's recorded or not. I know that when I meet up with you guys, whether it's at PAX Unplugged or at, uh, Save Against Fear, or wherever we might find ourselves, I know that we're going to end up uh, having some good discussions about the direction that all of this is going. Um, but uh, for people who are looking to find out more about you guys, do you have a website? Do you have a, a, a internet presence that you want to talk about? Uh, we absolutely do. You can find us at therapyandplay.com. Um, okay. We're on Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, all at Therapy in Play. Um, we have a few fun stuff coming up. Uh, we have an, on August 31st, and I don't know if this is go, will be out at, during that time, but uh, we're hosting a free community game day. And uh, it's free to everyone in the community to come into the office and play whatever games they want. 
and learn how to play Sentinels and Multiverse, which I'll be teaching throughout the day. The RPG. And, and the RPG, yes. we have oh, used okay. that not, not the card game. Not the card not game. The, card the, game. the, the RPG. Okay. I'll, I'll be teaching it and, and running a few sessions of it through the day. Excellent. And, I, I don't uh, know if this will be out by the 31st. But that, <laughs> that's I, I don't know still. either, but, but hopefully. Uh, we will be at Save Against Fear. Um, we will be at Metatopia. And we will be at PAX Unplugged this year. And, and we look forward to hopefully seeing you at PAX Unplugged and uh, Save Against Fear. Uh, PAX Unplugged, we might be helping uh, teach people to play Meeple Party. Oh, yeah. From Ninth Level Games, they, uh, shout out to Ninth, Ninth Level Games. Um, they, um, they have a game called Meeple Party, which is about socializing at a party and the things that can go wrong and the good things that can happen and, and categorizing them through pictures, which is a really fun game. And we're both going to be helping teach that game at the con. Yeah, we got to beta test that um, at Metatopia. And I was like, you need to tell me when this comes out because I want to use this with my clients. <laughs> uh, yeah, it's, it's, it fits, man. It's, it's just, mm. You had me at Meeple. Yeah. <laughs> yes, I know, right? Um, my Twitter is at Dr. B. Quinones. Um, I'm nowhere near as active <laughs> as okay. I should be. I'm definitely more the social one than he is. Mm -hmm. Yeah. But every so often you'll see me put up questions as far as where I'm stuck at as a therapist and what resources I need. So that, that I need that discussion because I think um, even, for example, this last week I, was, I put a, a post up. Does anybody know any good parenting's like training uh curriculums that we can use for groups because we want to not just do play therapy with the kids we want to start creating groups for the parents yeah you know and that way not just um not not just to help the parents understand the games that the kids are playing but to help the parents see that there are other there's other people going through what you're going through and if we play together that's great if you realize you're not alone in the struggles that you're going through in your everyday life, that's even better. Yeah. If if I come across anything, I'll I'll definitely let you know. But I'm gonna I'm gonna I'm gonna get your Twitter on there and, and make sure that I keep up with those questions because hopefully I can help sometimes. And and uh, we're not as active as I'd like to be, but Rolling for Change is active also on Twitter. <laughs> So if, if you really want to be uh, interactive with us, we're, we're very interactive on Facebook. Uh, okay. If you want to come on Facebook and ask us a question about anything that we're doing, that is definitely the place to do it. Excellent. If somebody will force me to answer. <laughs> <laughs> Just kind of poke him like uh, uh, Puxatani yeah. Phil. Yeah, so yeah, yeah. Come out yeah, and see yeah, a shadow. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> then it will go right back in. See you next February. <laughs> Bye, guys. <laughs> Well, again, guys, thanks so much for uh, for playing with me, and uh, I, I look forward to the next time we talk. Same. And, and to the rest of you guys, uh, keep on rolling for change. We'll see you next time. Take care. Good night. You've been listening to Rolling for Change, a proud member of the Geek Therapy Network. To learn more about how you can geek out and do good, head over to network.geektherapy.com. If you'd like to chat with us on the podcast or engage us in discussion, you can do so in the following ways. On Twitter, we are at Roll for Change. Our email is gamers at rollingforchange.com. Or if you just want to join the party, go to geektherapy.com forward slash discord. Finally, 
If you like our theme song, it's a song called Galileo by Rocket Scientists. One of my favorite songs from this band is a song called Enjoy the Weather, and it can be found on their album Revolution Road. Please, go find this and other great Rocket Scientists songs at Bandcamp or at Amazon. Once again, thanks so much for listening. Keep placing those workers, keep building those engines, and above all else, keep on rolling for change.